Hi, I'm Jason, creator of The Grey Rooms. I wanted to take a moment to thank those who financially support this podcast. Now, when I first began podcasting, I had an idea of how much time pretty much many of the stories would take me to produce. I, however, never even had the slightest idea of how much it would cost to create a podcast. And to have your support is amazing and has truly lessened the stress associated with these costs. So thank you for that, seriously. It's because of you, our wonderful patrons, that we have the ability to continue to create this podcast at such a high level. I mean it when I say that this would be so much harder without you. Seriously. Thank you. If you are interested in finding out about our reward tiers and about our new upcoming patron-only series, head on over to patreon.com forward slash the gray rooms. Check out those tiers. We are growing, not only on Patreon, but in the world. People know who the gray rooms are, and that is because of the listeners, and that is because of the support from our patrons. We thank you. These are exciting times for us, and we have only you to thank for that. Our patrons. Patrons such as Brad Bone, Jake Hauser, Jeremy Schaefer, Allison Brandt, Rael Bruet, Subversity Transmit, Jason Porras, Trigvi Christensen, Michael Velez, Kelly Bear. Those are just some of the newest members of our patron family. If you would like to find out more, again, patreon.com forward slash the gray rooms. Again, thank you so much for your support. It is beyond awesome every time that I get to see what's going on inside the Patreon community. And when I get to interact with you, patrons, it's, it's fun. I'm not a social media guy, but I'll tell you something right now. Patreon, I enjoy going on there and talking with y'all. So again, thank you. It's, it's great. It's, it's awesome. I'm excited. I don't know if you can tell. I can tell. <laughs> so thank you very much. And you know what? Let's get on with the show. Our stories may contain graphic or sensitive content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You wake on a hard, cold floor. So cold, it burns your skin. The air smells of sulfur and ash. Your head throbs. Your mouth is dry. You have no idea how you got here. Panic sets in. Fear becomes terror. What have you done? What brought you to this place? It doesn't matter. Because now, you belong to the Grey Rooms.
Hey Ray, can you help? Oh, I didn't hear you come home. Raymond, I need... What color do you think we should paint the baby's room? Look, hon, I know you're depressed. The job thing is bullshit. I get it. But look, I need some help here. You know, I'm doing everything. Yeah, I get it. You're doing everything. Can't do it alone. I get it, Lucy. I get it. I'm, I'm sorry, okay? I'm sorry. That I'm so goddamn worthless. But it's not my... Raymond! You're just sitting there. Get your goddamn ass off the couch and do something! What do you want me to do, Lucy? You want me to rob a bank? Maybe I would do something if you just shut the hell up and let me relax. Maybe you wouldn't have to rob a bank if you'd stop drinking all of our money away. Oh, shut up, Lucy. You're like a record, you know. Same damn thing. Raymond, you're drinking too much. Raymond, you're spending too much money. Raymond, we're having a baby. Why don't you shut the hell up and stop bitching at me? You want me to stop drinking? Oh, oh, Christ. Lucy. Lucy, I, I didn't mean it. I'm so sorry. I, I'm... You said you would quit! Shut up, Lucy. I tried. I tried to go out there. They won't hire me. No one will hire me. You tried real hard, didn't you, husband? So hard that you stopped and bought more beer! Lucy, you, you don't understand. I'm doing everything I can. Stop feeding me your bullshit and be a man. When did you get so weak, Raymond? Excuse me? What did you say? I'm the only one who does anything here. And I'm pregnant, you bastard. Pregnant! I'm having your child. Oh, cry me a river. I'm leaving, Raymond. The hell you are, Lucy. You think it's so easy? You don't think I see the bills? You don't think I feel like shit? You wanted the baby. You couldn't have had it when things were great. It's your fault. We wouldn't be having any trouble if you didn't get knocked up. I hate you. Stay away from me, Raymond. Or what? Come to think of it, you couldn't get knocked up all of those times we tried. How do I even know it's my baby? Is that what this is all about? Are you cheating on- Don't you 
ever try to hit me. No, Lucy. I, I'm sorry. I, I was so angry. I just wasn't myself. I, oh God, Lucy. I have to go. Oh God. I don't remember choosing a door. I re remember not dying, though. I remember being heroic. I rescued a little boy from some crazy and horrible people. I actually was able to do something good. It felt good. Maybe... I had been doing things wrong. Maybe I could somehow change things in these stories for the better. I smelled something. It smelled amazing. It also made something of a sizzling sound. I looked at the table and there was a covered dish on it. The smell was coming from there. You're awake. Good. I know you're probably angry, so... a peace offering. Good cop, bad cop again. I remember yelling at Bob and... All right. The doors. He stopped the woman singing. Was that Lucy? He said she was dead. That dream I had... Did that really happen? Was that me? Did I do all of those things to upset her? I walked to the platter and lifted the cover. It was bacon. Fat, sizzling strips of bacon that made me instantly think of that little girl's grotesque mother. The thought of Cherry shoving that fork into her flesh and... <coughs> Prisoner, you're pretty high maintenance, Raymond. What's wrong now? <coughs> you! That... That's from that lady. I'm not... <coughs> why, why do you do this shit to me? It's just bacon, Raymond. Pig. Oink, oink. My stomach was killing me now. The smell of bacon was making me nauseous. Who... Who comes up with these doors? Now that's a very interesting topic. Now about last time, the singing you were hearing was a warning. It was alerting you as to which door you shouldn't choose. Oh, duh. My wife was trying to warn me. That's what someone wants you to think. Oh, come on, Bob. I'm serious. Someone is trying to control your choices. Because it's really difficult to choose between two doors. I will get to the bottom of it. In the meantime, feel free to choose your door. Wait. Are you telling me? Or just making a statement? 
Choose your door, Raymond. Aren't we going to discuss you? Uh... You killed me. Yes, I did. There is a protocol. I have to follow it, just like everyone else. Lucy. That was my wife, right? The voice I was hearing? Yes. Did I do something bad? Please tell me that I'm not a piece of shit. You are not a piece of shit. Are you serious? Because, Bob, I, I don't feel good about this right now. Choose a door. I walked over to the table and grabbed the keys. One door was painted an ugly shade of chartreuse. I couldn't believe that I had barely any memories of my past, but for some reason could remember the name for a color like that. No singing. Of course not. Whoever whatever had been sending me those warnings was now gone. The second door was wooden with frosted glass. It had words on it. Jake Stone. Private Eye. Some of these doors were so oddly specific, I wondered if they were actual doors outside this. But how? Why? My whole world felt a bit like that of a private detective these days. I chose that door. What the hell, right? I was probably going to die anyway. Hey, Bob. Yes, Raymond. I'm sorry. I think your gifts and everything are kind of misguided and psychotic, but I appreciate it. Goodbye, Raymond. Let the record show that... <clears throat> Let the record show that prisoner 929494 chose door 1292. Ground level. It wasn't the actual jump I found difficult. It was stepping to the edge. The edge of life. The edge of sanity. Death. We spend our entire lives rushing through our days. We hit our 40s and 50s and realize that life increases its speed. But when imminent death is eight floors below, rising faster every floor, Time travels through the famed rabbit hole, decelerating enough to smell one last rose or reflect upon the rose petals soaring with malevolent calm alongside your memories. 
The sun had yet to break the horizon when I arrived on the job site. The clouds blushed various hues of pinks, purples, and blues, outlined by the famed silver lining. Heat waves rippled anxiously, awaiting to battle the freezing winter's record-breaking streak. As a concrete finisher, the security guards are accustomed to witnessing my crew's arrival at different hours of the morning. The job site is a billion-dollar project. The Royalty Resort and Convention Center that will feature 17 floors with 1,500 guest rooms, including 114 presidential suites, and over 500,000 square feet of extraordinary grounds, meeting, and convention space. As a gateway to the Rockies, royalty will offer memorable experiences to its guests with first-class restaurants, luxurious spas and salons, diverse shops, winding waterways, and picture-perfect sunset views. A retreat and adventure in the Rockies without the Rockies. At least that's how they sell it. Royalty spelled R-O-I-A-L-T-E. Their attempt at cheating us with ancient spellings. Infidelity. For now, it's eight floors of a developing construction fetus. I drive past the security and into the empty parking lot. The job site, empty. The air freezing biting at every inch of exposed skin as I step out from my car, open the trunk, and search through weeks of trash for my safety vest and hard hat. This kept me undisturbed on my climb if I were to have crossed paths with a safety coordinator or any other prick with the beat the accident before the accident attitude. Or the foreman pushed, we all have families to get home to safely and cold beers to drink attitude. Family. The interior of the building differs from floor to floor. My feet tracked white dust along, thanks to the first floor being sheathed in drywall and drywall tape and mud. The air clammy, every exterior door sealed with plastic to trap the heat blasted from the propane heaters. A cool blast of air engulfed me as I crossed through the temporary tarpaulin door to the construction stairs. Heat escaped the temporary doors to the second floor and third floor and swept through the aluminum stairs, testing my cardio. These floors, I know, are only drywall-covered walls. The fourth and fifth at the ruffian stage. There are no temporary doors denying me of a view. Debris from the drywall framers and electricians pulling wire scattered on the floor. The rooms and hallways, aluminum skeletons. The plumbing and electrical roughing, just the veins and guts to this construction fetus. The baby. 
Despite my breathing battling to keep pace, I kept moving. While trekking the stairs past the fifth floor, horns and beeps echoed along the fifth floor, the parking lots filling quickly. This floor appears stripped. Chalk lines scattered on the floor, defining the rooms and such like a noir crime scene. The exterior walls on this floor appeared generic without their being covered in drywall, exposing the low-end grade construction material. That's what construction has transformed into, life-sized Lego block buildings. A comfortable anxiety rushed me. I couldn't be held back. Seeing or talking to anyone could have prevented my course of action. My feet slapped at the stairs, rising above the empty sixth floor, empty. Nothing to break the bitter chill which flowed through all the way to the stair core, snapping at my face, begging me to go back home. That's not an option. Climbing past the seventh floor, my lungs and legs ran purely on adrenaline. The temporary stairways claiming the empty elevator cores unforgiving. Unforgiving as a night without sleep. Somewhere around the 24-hour mark spent awake. Drinking, rails of cocaine, panicked thoughts. My endurance pulls me to a stop at the seventh floor. Here, heat escapes in whiffs through any possible opening of the tarp-covered doorway. This is to keep the recently poured eighth floor from freezing. During the workday, tradesmen escape the freezing weather on this floor only to learn quickly it's like a fucking sweat lodge in there. A few deep breaths later and I completed the trek to my final destination, the eighth floor. I stepped away from the stair core and into the frostbitten air, my armpits like sandpaper with every swing of my arms chafed with whiskey-saturated sweat. Cocaine still dripped down the back of my throat. A bitter breeze slapped me away from sobriety. The floor empty, save for the concrete blankets, the few trash hoppers and rebar-filled column forms, and icicle-covered safety cables guarding the edges at OSHA-specified heights. My legs tired from the eight stories of stairs, my steps across the concrete blankets and to the edge were slow and careful. I leaned against the safety cables, breaking off some of the icicles, sending them to the concrete edge where they shattered like glass. Others made their own leap over the edge, the breeze brooding stronger, dragging them to ground level. Down, down, falling out of sight. Below, workers walked with groggy, weekend-exhausted steps, their eyes fixed on their every step, cautious of the ice patches and potential slip and trip hazards. Nobody looked up. 
everyone rushing to the heated meeting tent where stretch and bend takes place in the mornings. The safety vest pulled at my hood as I tugged it over my head. My hard hat flipped off my head and sailed over the edge. I doubled over, crossing the two safety cables like a boxer entering the ring. Only I stood upright on the wrong side. Two feet of concrete stood between the safety cables and the leading edge. I closed my eyes and reached behind, gripping the cables with my bare hands and leaned forward. It wasn't the actual jump I found difficult. It was stepping to the edge. The safety cable froze against my palms as if attempting to keep me from my demise. Grabbing at my life with every one of its braided cable strands. I leaned over the edge at an uncomfortable angle. The sight of ground level from this height twisted my stomach, forcing it to empty itself with an acidic burn through my throat. <coughs> Thoughts of rediscovery agonized me. Hesitance drew through my knees, forcing them to shiver. Not from the frigid air, no, but from fear that I'd be better off living. Then, the weight of my body pulled my palms away from the safety cable, patches left behind. My body embraced the descent. The edge of the concrete floor bid farewell to my work boots and the last grip on life I had. But when imminent death is eight floors below, rising faster every floor, time travels through the famed rabbit hole, decelerating enough to smell one last rose or reflect upon the rose petals soaring with malevolent calm alongside your memories. Rose petals. Tomorrow will mark one year that my wife and I left to spend our honeymoon in the Bahamas. Our anniversary. We spent more time on the cruise than we did on the island. Nassau, the cheaper of the commercial Bahama Islands, not the prettiest. Cheaper. The cruise was more like Vegas on water. We spent more of our time gambling, drinking, and eating than we did truly enjoying each other's company. We spent less than a day on the actual island. It took three hours to get to an actual beach and wait for our scuba expedition. Then the weather turned, sending all of us on our way back to the cruise liner. We kept drinking all the way to the ship. Kept drinking while standing in line for another hour waiting to board. We drank to our luck of weather. We stood in line, love drunk, talking of our future. The overpriced condominium we'd eventually buy in the city. There, we wouldn't have to spend money and take time on the aesthetics one finds in the suburbs. We could focus on growing our family and more vacations. The world was our oyster. 
Then the doors opened up to board the ship. There, a bed of rose petals awaited us. A little extra tip to the cleaning ladies, and one can arrange for these little extras in love. My plan was to follow the customary actions portrayed in movies. Marry the girl, take honeymoon with the girl, make love to the girl, start family with the girl. The start family with the girl collapsed shortly after. But when imminent death is seven floors below, rising faster every floor, the rose petals have frozen in time above you. You get one last chance to see the safety cables wrapped in orange safety netting, pregnant with the freezing breeze. The moment your wife told you she had missed her period, freezing over in your mind. For four months straight, we reenacted the first four months of our relationship. Pure, unadulterated passion. Anywhere and everywhere. Not one place in our condominium that hadn't been baptized with a mist from a sanitizing spray bottle. Carnal desires let us out of our condo. Theater? Check. Highway emergency lane? Check. Library? Check. Hiking in the mountains? Check. After four months, the only check we couldn't uncover was hidden in the procreation talisman, the almighty pregnancy test. Young and with our entire future together, we sought answers. We both looked forward to having kids, her more than I, only because the margin that separated I want kids and I really desperately fucking want kids was a chasm. Although our extracurricular activities were fun and dripping lust, we wanted kids. She desperately fucking wanted kids. A week after submitting to tests at the fertility clinic, we received the phone call. They'd called to my phone, so my results were given first. My results? A man of godlike seed, locked and loaded, ready to populate the world twofold. Strutting the kitchen with my chest out, displaying my worthiness to my wife, I handed her the phone. Behind her outstretched hand, her laughter beat my heart with a mallet. <laughs> she raised the phone to her ear, inches away from the corners of her smiling mouth. Every uh-huh and yeah, her smile fizzled away, a wetness overtaking her unblinking eyes. Her fist pressed tightly against her mouth, hiding any evidence of there ever being a smile there moments ago. Nodding quietly to the phone, then lowering it to her side. Her eyes overflowing with depression, she leaned into my chest. I can't have babies. But when imminent death is six floors below, rising faster every floor, you haven't any words to respond. Your voice box remained planted to the concrete floor you last touched. 
You get one last chance to see the carts loaded with aluminum railing placed within the safe confines of the correct side of the netted safety cables, and the tectonic plate shift in your plans once laid as a foundation to your marriage. We'd scheduled a follow-up with the fertility clinic, our new battlegrounds. We dodged the psychiatric and post-trauma sessions. The thought of adoption demolished. A surrogate mother nowhere near a possibility. Actual treatments the furthest thing from our financial budget. It was impossible to reason with my wife that loans are always available. We're already neck deep in debt. We shouldn't even be thinking about a baby. Why is this happening to us? You're better off without me. Her emotions incontrollable. It didn't get any better. The fights. The moments we were too tired of fighting spent in silence. I fought for our marriage. She fought for her sanity. We fought each other. Two-thirds into our freshman year of marriage, I volunteered for late nights at work. The less I could see my wife, the less chance of bitter arguments. The less bitter arguments, the more restless sleep brewed. Both my wife and I tossing and turning well after midnight, avoiding brushing each other with an elbow or knee or breath. To help me drift away to a careless sleep, I volunteered at the local dive bar. Someone had to take up some space at the bar. The first few weeks kept me snoring shortly after arriving home late. Also kept my wife's attitude strong and diverse. Shouting one night, cold shoulder another. Missing altogether other nights, sleeping at her mother's house. Nothing a hot shower and sleep couldn't get rid of. At least for me. That is, until the night I decided not to go home. But when imminent death is five floors below, rising faster every floor, time grows impatient. It picks up speed. You get one last chance to see aluminum framing safely behind the random bare exterior wall panels with windows filthy as the Roach Motel which ended your marriage and life for better or worse. Superintendents accompanied me at the birth of my drinking binge. At first it was consumed with laughter, just as my relationship had once been. Slowly it progressed into phone swipes of family outings and holidays. Then they barged in with lectures aimed at me fixing my marriage, child or not. Fuck that. Inviting them out for drinks came to a halt. A field engineer calls the lowest spot on the construction office totem pole home. Usually recent college graduates. Karen lived at the bottom. She asked me to join her for a drink since it was apparent I was shunning the supers and they apparently shunned the newbies. Two peas. What the fuck, right? I was being shunned at home. One drink couldn't hurt. 
While working, Karen's hair usually held tight in a ponytail hidden beneath her hard hat. Her eyes concealed behind tinted safety glasses, her hands in safety gloves. At the bar, her strawberry red hair swung leisurely at her shoulders. Past your green eyes begged for attention. Her manicure meticulous. Two more drinks couldn't hurt, right? Jokes turned to flirtatious mannerisms, turned to caressing shoulders and hands. Two tequila shots couldn't hurt, right? Her soft lips grazing at every wrinkle of mine. A midnight rendezvous at the motel couldn't end a marriage, right? When imminent death is four floors below, rising faster every floor, you realize there are no more chances, except for these last few. You get one last chance to see the entire floor ensconced in the exterior walls, the windows reflecting the fear on your face, but not the memory of waking to your wife the day after you committed adultery. My mental tower crane collapsed, creating a knotted mess of cranial activity. Vision, speech, all covered in dust from the prior night's wreckage. The only fact still standing, the drunken debauchery Karen and I partook in, and the smell of coffee and breakfast rushing me. Me laying on the couch, my wife in the kitchen, smiling. Singing along to Elvis Presley's Can't Help Falling in Love, bringing me coffee, bidding me good morning, asking me to join her at the table. I obeyed because I was too hungover to think, but mainly because I was taken aback by the sudden change in attitude. At the table, knives and forks scraping the plate with caution, she claimed to have had an epiphany in her sleep. Children shouldn't define a marriage. If God didn't want us to have children, he meant for us to travel the world. The Bahamas were just the beginning. No more fighting, only loving. Start back at date one and rekindle what our marriage should be defined with. Happiness. The guilt netted on my face was taken as hope by my wife. My hope she never finds out about my infidelity. Imminent death is three floors below, rising faster every floor. You realize you haven't taken a breath since you went airborne. You get one last chance to see the masons scaffolding rising, their mortar and mesh taking its place, and the patchwork on your marriage shattering. The last leg of our first year into marriage, we were back to dating, back to giggles and flirting, back to first kisses since our bout with unhappiness wrecked my nerves more than our first actual kiss. The sex passionate, puppy love well-versed in our anatomies, the spots behind her ears, the crease above my Adam's apple, the perimeter beneath her belly button, my belt line. Our bank account flourished. We were saving for our first anniversary trip. 
At work, I was saving myself from Karen, avoiding her like OSHA fines. She, too, kept her distance. Then, on the eve of our vacation, two days before our one-year anniversary, the doorbell rang. Death is two floors below, rising faster every floor. You realize thinking is no longer keeping up with time nor the fall. You get one last chance to see the brick facade, one without any attention to detail, all of it smeared by speed into a raging mixture of browns and reds. One last chance to witness the sin of life. Karen stood on the patio, eyes wet and hands shaking, opening the screen door, seeing that I had no intention of the hospitality. She held up a talisman. On the tip of it, a green checkmark sitting above a generic drawing of a baby. I told her, no, get the fuck off my property. That's wrong. She pulled out another talisman, throwing it at my face. Then another. Three out of three confirmed pregnancy. She hadn't been with anyone else, she claimed. I asked how she found me. She slapped me, yelling for my wife, wanting to tell her the truth. The baby my wife couldn't have was now another woman's. My hand met the side of her face. Before she could double over, my hands reintroduced themselves to her neck, only not lustfully. Her feet kicked at the door, my hands tightened, frightened of what was happening. Everything was ending. The rekindled flame in my relationship, my reason for fighting another day. Hands scratched and pulled at my shoulders, but they weren't Karen's. Like a falling dream, I snapped upright, watching my wife swing her claws, talisman gripped in her fingers. Then her hand dropped along with her gaze, down to Karen, Karen's lifeless body. First floor, afraid to blink, death is below. My lungs burn, my throat a rusted cicada shrill, I'm screaming. Finally, ground level is half a breath away, covered in rebar scrap and tin scrap and concrete washouts. Last chance to reflect on the shriek escaping my wife's body. My wife grabbing her phone, punching away and running. My hands reaching out with enough time to grab hold of her shirt collar, pulling, tugging her backward, wanting to explain and convince her we should leave on vacation and continue going, never stopping, never returning. But when she fell back, the corner of the coffee table cushioned the nape of her neck, cushioned the end of her life just as the drug and alcohol binge cushioned my night. My boots cushioned my feet to the liquor store, to the inner city dope man, 
Then, all the way up to the eighth floor of the Royalty Resort and Convention Center. You see, it wasn't the actual jump I found difficult. It was... Ground Level Written by M.R. Tapia You can follow M.R. Tapia on Twitter at M underscore R underscore Tapia. T-A-P-I-A. Great story. Loved it, brother. And it is with my greatest honor to announce a very special contributor to this story. Ground Level was voiced by none other than David Cummings. Now, you may or may not know David. I mean, come on. Really? It's David Cummings from the No Sleep Podcast. He was such a treat to have and such a surprise as well. I am personally beyond grateful to have him perform this exceptional story for us. If you don't already know Mr. David Cummings was and is the inspiration behind my entire motivation to become a podcaster. So, obviously, what an absolute honor it was to be able to include him in the Grey Rooms. I truly hope to have the opportunity to work more with David in the very near future. And you can always find out so much about David Cummings and the No Sleep Podcast on his website, nosleeppodcast.com, or his Twitter, at CummingsDG. Thanks again, David. I truly mean that. Thank you. The editing and sound design for Ground Level was by me. Jason Wilson. You can follow me on Twitter at Audio Torment. And of course, we couldn't have a solid production without the soul in the mix. The musical composition was by Mr. J.M. Scherf. You can follow this exceptionally talented composer at J.M. Scherf Music, or you can also check out stuff from him on his website, jmscherfmusic.com. The artwork for Ground Level was by Bo Chapel. You can follow him on Twitter at infrafan. Gosh, I always screw that up. Sorry, bro. Brooks Bigley, Brooks underscore Bigley. That's him on Twitter. And he loves IPA. And Graham Rowett. That's at Graham NY. Three exceptionally talented, wonderful, wonderful men. The Raymond story was written by Brian Black. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Darth Chair. And the story was performed by myself, Jason Wilson, as Raymond. Christina Wilson as Lucy, and she did an exceptional job. Feel free to follow Christina on Twitter at Riding That Wave. And of course, the ever-present entity better known as Bob was voiced by the exceptionally talented Graham Rowett. It is always an absolute pleasure working with such wonderful and talented people. And it is even more wonderful knowing we are getting the opportunity to perform and create for you, our wonderful listeners. It is you that keeps this ball rolling. We love every minute of it. We would like to mention that we have a Twitter and a Facebook with the exact same handle, The Grey Rooms Pod, and an Instagram, The Grey Rooms Podcast. We also have a website, thegrayrooms.com, and a Patreon. 
The Grey Rooms. We currently are working to release a new patron-only series on there with the title Bane. If you would like to learn more about Bane and possibly financially support this podcast, please jump on over and check us out. We also are currently asking for our wonderful listeners to check out the show notes for a link to a very brief questionnaire. This is so we can begin the process of reaching out to sponsors. If you would be so kind to click on that link and take a moment to fill out the questionnaire for us, it would be greatly appreciated. Again, we love entertaining you and hope to always deliver on your expectations. And more episodes are coming very soon, and more information as well. But until then, thank you again so very, very much, and we will see you in two weeks.